Hello, everyone. How are you? I am just coming back from Memorial Day weekend here in the U.S. It was the most glorious weekend of all time. Those three days make such a huge difference. Some of you loyal and kind listeners will recall that over the years, I've shared my inability to tolerate heat of any kind. Moving to D.C. was a strange choice in hindsight. But we've strangely had this glorious and actual spring where it doesn't just go like it usually does from winter flurries to death heat overnight. And we just ease into the forthcoming pain. Do you care about the weather? No. But I tell you this to explain why Sunday was just brilliant. My friends planned to hike about an hour and a half away and I rented us a car. They didn't tell me where we were going, nor did I ask. I prefer to just get in the car and do what I'm told. As it turned out, What they put into Google Maps took us to Harper's Ferry in West Virginia, which has been on my bucket list for day trips that I can take while I live here. We climbed this mountain with our pups to a spot with views of where the Shenandoah and Potomac Rivers meet, spanning, so basically you've got a view of the border of Maryland and Virginia. And the trail we took as part of the Appalachian Trail as well, so we saw some through hikers. They were smelly. Driving through the big grassy farms of Maryland reminded me how badly I needed to do that. Just get out of the city and all its anxieties. DC is like at an all-time high for crime. It's all crazy. Everyone's freaking out on next door. I needed to get into the trees and the breeze. And it was really such a treat to a person without a car who doesn't get out. Far too often, really. I move within like a one-mile radius of where I live. Hey, also, if you live in the area and you love to hike and you're not like a marathon runner who can do it in an hour and you aren't a dangerous person, let me know. I'd love to do more hiking in group settings. And also, can I ride with you? I'll pay gas. Anyway, on to this week's episode. The big news last week was the Metafine, of course. If you read my newsletter, the Privacy Beat newsletter, which you can find on terratrue.com, you know, I was just talking about whether fines are effective. How timely. But in this case, there's so much more going on. As my guest on today's show will tell us, the situation is so much more politically strategic politically strategic than reads on its face. And I think it's a fascinating way that data privacy is impacting and may impact U.S. policy. But first, some news from this week. A group of 10 U.S. senators have written to Google asking for answers about its location data privacy practices as Health IT Security reports, and a bunch of other papers too, but I'm taking some of this news from Health IT Security. For context, in 2022, after the Dobbs decision, Google said it would delete location histories when users visit abortion clinics, domestic violence shelters, addiction treatment centers, etc. But 10 months later... According to this report and these senators, Google has yet to implement that plan. So a group of big name senators, including Klobuchar, Warren, Wyden, Markey, Blumenthal, privacy, you know, big hitters, wrote to Google saying that Google, quote, failed to delete sensitive location data in nearly 60 percent of test cases over the last several months, end quote. Senators have asked for answers on Google's data deletion, as well as whether the company allows advertisers to target ads based on sensitive location data. Next, hey, Texas passed a privacy law, y'all. As our buddy Kier Lamont, director of U.S. legislation at Future Privacy Forum, notes in his latest dispatch, 
the Texas Data Privacy and Security Act has an interesting little requirement that all businesses operating in Texas, no matter how big or small, must get prior consent before selling users personal sensitive data. Also, it defines a sale as both monetary or for other valuable consideration from a controller to a third party, which, as Kier notes, likely implicates data transfers as well. Also interesting, Kier continues, is this data rights provision where users can exercise a GPS kind of signal to opt out, but businesses can ignore that request if it, quote, does not possess the ability to process the request, end quote, or, and this one makes me really LOL, quote, does not process similar or identical requests for the purpose of complying with other state privacy laws, end quote. So, I don't know. Um, We'll see. For more on state privacy law action, as always, visit Kier's blog, The Privacy Dispatch, or always check out uh, David Stoss's work on the Hush Blackwell website. Lastly, and a great segue into today's episode, of course, the big case from last week. The DPC fined Meta $1.3 billion, the highest ever GDPR fine, and it ordered Meta to stop transferring data from the EU to the U.S., As expected, Meta says it will appeal the decision, but for now, technically speaking, that means companies transferring data from the EU to the U.S. are also in breach of the law. And that's because the problem is not something that Meta did, besides transfer the data using SCCs, standard contractual clauses, which it believed were a legal method to transfer electronic data. It's because the EU and the U.S., since Privacy Shield got struck down, still lack an agreement on legal transfers because of U.S. surveillance laws, which U.S. companies don't have control over. So what's a company to even do? And I'm not like, you know, I'm not sympathizing with Meta here. I'm just saying, uh, you know, this impacts a whole lot of people. Uh, so that's that's tough for you guys. Okay. Uh, I'm not trying to be flip on that. that. Seriously, this is a mess. As a quick refresher, you'll recall that this saga started back in 2013 after the Snowden revelations when Max Schrems filed a complaint with the Irish DPC that Facebook's use of safe harbor to transfer data wasn't legal. So then safe harbor itself got struck down. The EU and the U.S. made some changes, came up with the privacy shield agreement. Schrems said, nay, don't like it. Still not good. Struck that one down too. So here we are. In this episode, I'm chatting with Eduardo Usteron, who's been working in this space far longer than I have, and who's always not only brilliant, but so kind. I really appreciate that in life, don't you? I was comparing him the other day on Twitter, uh, just I was, you know, tweeting away, as one does, to Cam Carey, but Eduardo's like the UK version. You know, like, I can be salty and jaded about predictions for privacy land, because life... But Eduardo, like Cam, is always able to calmly explain why the world's not ending in any given scenario. And plus, he's downright pleasant about it. Here's our chat on the future of data transfers. And while I'm sure you've by now read the news and started strategizing, I hope you could still get something out of this because Eduardo has a great way of putting things into context and telling the story of where we're at. So I hope this helps you on your journey ahead. As always, thanks for listening. Love you. Talk soon. So if you could just talk us through um, what we learned earlier this week in terms of what the uh, Irish Data Protection Commissioner actually came out and said. Absolutely. 
Okay, well, so this week was, I guess, the culmination of what some people would say is a 10-year, a decade-long process to determine to what extent transfers of data to the U.S. are lawful or not. And the outcome of the decision was that it's not. <laughs> the, the, the trans, those transfers of data in the, in the particular context of Facebook and in light of the potential access to personal data by U.S. government agencies, despite the best efforts, I guess, of Meta to put in place the right measures of protection, those measures would not be effective enough at the end of the day in order to prevent the type of access to data that, I guess, from the point of view of the EU data protection authorities is regarded as unreasonable and therefore unlawful. Okay, and so... What is what must Meta do? What does the enforcement action actually say? It's like a one point three billion dollar, I think, U.S. dollar fine uh, plus. What 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 is it charged with doing now? Well, they can do a lot of things. They can um, <laughs> they can pray. They can uh, for a miracle. They can uh, uh, the, uh, um, hope that the uh, data privacy framework will be put in place before the real action uh, needs to to happen. But above all, I think what they would need to do is they need to appeal the decision because ultimately it's a very hefty fine. And from their point of view, they will be saying, they will be thinking, well, we did everything that anyone could have possibly done to comply with the law here. The law requires to protect the data. We looked at the uh, requirements under the GDPR in terms of what are the appropriate safeguards. We put in place all of those safeguards. We use the safeguards that are recognized by Article 46 of the directive. We put in place the safeguards that were required by the SREMS2 decision, organizational, technical, and we did everything that it can possibly done by anyone in order to protect the data. And therefore, we are being done here for uh, trying our very best to comply with the laws. I think it probably in a much more articulate uh, way than that, they will probably have to appeal the decision. And appeals can take a very long time, right? Like that's months and months, most likely, yeah? Yeah, we welcome to the, the world of law and tribunals and regulatory actions. So yeah, that's always, uh, but you, you always get there. You know, if, if you are patient, you do get to, to the right decisions. And, uh, well, I guess the right decisions, maybe not for everybody, but the, the decisions. So it will happen and, and we'll have to see. And just to be clear, who, to whom does Facebook appeal? Do they go to the EDPB? Do they go to the CJEU? Like what, what do they do? No, they, they need to go back to Ireland. Also, oh. uh, this is a decision by the Irish. Data Protection Commission, so they will have to use the channels to appeal that decision through the Irish tribunals and take it take it further like that. Okay, okay. Um, 
Okay. So what, what would you say this means, you know, for companies who are looking at this saying we're doing cross border data transfers? Um, we had been relying on privacy shield and maybe we even, um, put in SCCs. What does this mean for, for those folks? Yeah. What this means is that everyone is very worried, obviously, because ultimately we think that the data privacy framework will come and save the day, at least, at least temporarily. But ultimately, what we have here is a decision that is looking at effectively the SREMS2 judgment and interpreting it in such a way that there is no room for some sort of risk assessment. The risk is, if the risk is there, even if it's 0.001, the risk is there, even if it's 99.999. So the issue here is uh, from the point of view of transfers from the European Union to the United States, to the extent that those transfers of personal data involve an electronic communication service provider, which is the type of entity that is subject to FISA and therefore the law that allows this type of access to data. Therefore, today, every single transfer is exposed. And therefore, according to that rationale of that decision, it's unlawful. So I think that that is a reality. So today, every single transfer of data to the US, unless it doesn't happen to involve an electronic communication service provider, which I think is unlikely, is unlawful. I mean, that that is the reality of this decision. And I think that this is what, of course, uh, the U.S. government now is trying to address by saying or by uh, implementing what they had already said they were going to do anyway and, and saying, ah, you may think that our law is not compatible with European law, but as it happens, it is because now we have implemented the type of limitations and restrictions to our government access to data under FISA that we, does make it compatible with European law. And therefore, uh, crisis averted, well, I said for, for Facebook, uh, but crisis averted, uh, everyone is fine. And just to be clear, um, you were saying, I was listening to you talk a little bit about this the other day, and you were saying when we talk about the risk-based approach, like the risk being could U.S. law enforcement access this data? Like, if there's any chance that they could, then there is, then the risk is not zero, right? Yeah, but the thing is this. The, the world is not black and white, you know? The, the, there's nothing in this world that is black and white, in the sense that you always need to find compromises. And that's what, I guess, judgments are for, finding the right compromise, the right solution, to a real-life problem. If the solution to this issue is you cannot transfer data to the U.S. at all and it's all unlawful, in reality, if we really think this through, that is not a solution because that is a solution that would involve stopping using the Internet and, and living our lives in the way we live them today. So that is not a solution. It is not. And, and I think... Even the most dogmatic uh, regulator out there, unless, of course, they want to stop the Internet and create a sort of European version only of, of the same, will realize that. Of course, that is not that doesn't mean 
that they are not, uh, they don't have a, a point, I guess, in trying to address what they would say is um, this uh, disproportionate, uh, an unreasonable uh, mechanism for law, law well, for uh, intelligence agencies and government agencies to have access to, to data. And I think that is the way in which they are trying to, I guess, force that solution to be to be developed. But that's that's it. I I want to talk more about that solution in just a minute, but I just I'm curious. I'm gonna to have to like stumble through this question because it it just came to my mind and I'm I'm not as eloquent as you. But when I was talking to Jay Adelson actually the other day about um how decisions are made judicially and I was asking him like does the judge ever have to consider whether the law intended for whatever repercussion may come from any given ruling or like if basically like if they have to interpret the law very, very strictly, or if they can think about also did the law intend to, to govern this or not. And, and so my question is with this decision where we're saying no transfer is legal and that could absolutely change the way that we're all able to use the internet and have crazy financial impacts for global commerce and companies trying to monetize data. Like, is that something that any regulator like Helen Dixon, for example, has to factor into a decision like this, like that I could actually break the internet or is she mandated to look at the GDPR and privacy shields and validation and say, listen, like it's pretty clear here. Yeah, I think it would take a very uh, blind attitude to ignore the fact that a decision could break the internet. So I think it's either you want to break the internet and therefore you make that decision, or you know that someone else has to do something in order to avoid the internet to be to be broken. And and therefore, you're very conscious. And I don't think there is, again, a single uh, regulator that has been involved in this decision that is not aware of what we're talking about. No one is going to, to suddenly realize that, oh, my goodness, what have we done? Does this mean we now need to stop the Internet? Oh, no, 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 no. That's not what we wanted. Of course not. But everybody knows that. Everybody understands it. You know, these are intellectually uh, sound people who understand the, the consequences of their decisions. So I think that's not that's not the issue. The issue is whether you believe that that is the right way to proceed in order to trigger change, or of course you take that into account and say, well, change needs to happen anyway. But because the outcome of this decision could be so severe, it's probably not the wisest thing to do to reach this decision. And I think reading between the lines, the Irish DPC, if they had uh, made a decision on their own, they would have probably gone for the latter approach, where they understand the significance and they understand the, the, the law itself, but they would have probably thought, well, we, this is a still an issue, but uh, it would be wrong in in practice, even if it sounds right in, in law, but it would be wrong the wrong outcome to, to, to get to this point. But of course, 
uh, it wasn't just their decision, or uh, it wasn't their decision at all, in a way. And therefore, uh, the, the, the collective view of the EDPB, or at least those data protection authorities that were involved, was that they needed to make this very radical decision in, the, in that way. Okay, so I know that... Um so we're saying, okay, this is a tactic and, or maybe a tactic. And now it's sort of like the ball is in, uh, you know, our political negotiators court, especially here in the U S where there's all this pressure for us to revise, um, some of our laws under our provisions under FISA. And this is where I just always, and I'm asking you to crystal ball it, uh, here, or, or just give me sort of your insights based on your expertise here. You know, I just remember reporting back in the day when I was reporting for the IPP on Capitol Hill and going to 702, FISA section 702 hearings and just really hearing the passion behind some of the law enforcement agencies in the U.S. behind their arguments saying, like, this is how we protect our citizens, you know, in a post-9-11 world. Like, we have to be able to have access to all of this data, et cetera, et cetera. And so to me, I think about the fact that the U.S. really has to pivot a little bit here or, like, loosen its grip a little bit on some of these um, rules because in order to appease the EU, in order to facilitate cross-border data transfers. Do you, I know we hear differing reports and we're not inside those rooms, but do you see the U.S. getting to a place where we can um, sort of acquiesce the EU concerns here? Or do you feel that tight grip that the U.S. seems to have on wanting access to this data as well? Well, I think you mentioned somewhere that I'm an optimist and 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 I am. And I think in reality, we are not that far apart, I think, between you know, the, the Europe and, and the U.S. I don't think we're that far apart on this topic. And if you look at the history of the efforts that have been made since the very early days of Safe Harbor, the reality is that the, the work has been done over literally two decades to to try to harmonize this issue. And this is an ongoing debate. And the point that you made about um, in, in the intelligence community saying, look, we have a job to do and we need the tools to do that job. It's a fair point. And the point of uh, those who say, look, we want to live in a, in a free society, uh, free from unnecessary surveillance, also have a very valid point. So the question is, how do you reconcile these two points, which are both valid, in a way that you achieve, the, the, you know, if not the best of, of all worlds, at least the, 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 a compromise that takes you as far as you can be in, in both directions. So I think that, that is the issue. The, the, the problem is that in this case, uh, Meta has been caught in the crossfire, of course, that, and it, it sounds out to be a very expensive situation for them. But this is this is literally a debate about freedom, democracy, and the, the safety of citizens. And this is what this is this is all about in reality. And this will continue to be for many, many years and many, many decades, because that's the, 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 the this is a crazy world in which we live. So yes, the, the, of course, the law needs to be applied and the law exists. And I can see how you can rationally apply the law and make this type of decisions. But I think we need to be 
very aware of the fact that ultimately this is a debate about democracy which needs to happen. And I, as I going back to the beginning of this answer, I am optimistic that the the EU or Europe on one side and the US can understand each other. Because if they can't, you tell me who 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 is going to understand each other in in this crazy world. So I think ultimately. Uh, I don't think that we are very far away. And in fact, we're probably very, very close if we're not already there, because it is clear that the direction of travel, particularly since the executive order of last year, regarding the changes to the way in which, again, the intelligence community needs to operate, probably takes us over the line. And I know that, again, that is also debatable, but I think it may well be that by the time all of those changes are implemented in, in just a matter of months, uh, we are already there and we have already found that sweet spot where everyone in, or almost everyone is happy. Yeah, except probably Shrems. I, I don't know if he'll ever be satisfied. I'm just waiting for the data privacy agreement to come into, or framing to, to come into play, and then for Shrems to launch some case about, I've, I've, I'm going to poke a hole here, and everyone says, oh my god, please not more. Um, I got to admire the hustle, though. Okay, so now, do you think that, um, you know, the other risk of this for some European companies who are... Uh, uh, or, or for companies in general, I guess, uh, is that maybe Europe starts to think about data localization, right? Like, well, I'll just avoid the data transfers in general. Do you think that that's a realistic um, move? Is that something that could sort of risk this cross-border commerce that we see with so many cloud providers, for example, in the U.S.? Yeah, well, it's not that Europe may start thinking about it. They've been thinking about it for a long time, and which is, this is part of, of the reason behind uh, this type of decision. In beside the the whole again democratic issue around uh, government access to data, and a lot of it, or, or some of the rationale behind this, in terms of okay, well, so the solution to this problem is actually to create a more European-centric internet. So you have to then look at whether that is at all possible or indeed desirable. And to what what that would involve in, in, in practice. Because my view is that when the internet was invented, data localization became a myth. In the sense that if data localization it means putting all the data into a geographically sort of reinforced uh, piece of hardware, where you say, okay, this data and this the way in which the, the the users of this data interact with each other can only operate within the boundaries of this specific country or set of countries. That is technically possible, I'm sure, but then you are creating uh, sort of piles, you know, and, and isolated communities from each other in the 21st century. Mm. So I think, I think my instinct tells me that in the 21st century, that is not going to be possible because we've gone in the, in the we've been going in the other direction, frankly, for centuries <laughs> when we started going around the world in the first place. 
But in, in, in the past 20, 30 years, data globalization has become the norm. And therefore, this is something that we need to uh, bear in mind. Okay, two more questions for you, if you will. Um, one is, and this is again, like, I love to get a little bit philosophical when we talk about privacy stuff. That's what I think is just really interesting. Um, you know, the other stuff's interesting too, but I, I just love thinking about the the why and and uh, the human impact and all that fun stuff. And so we, you and I were kind of actually engaging the other day on Twitter um, about fines because I was I was just thinking I've been watching the FTC come down with these decisions that seem to be getting a little more creative with you know either the FTC saying not only must you delete the data that you collect you collected which we believe was collected you know illegally. Um, but also you must delete the very algorithm itself. And actually I was chatting with a reporter from CyberScoop the other day, Tanya Riley, and she was saying that she had heard, uh, I think she read that uh, in in one meta case, the FTC is actually proposing, uh, this hasn't been like obviously a, uh, a firm decision or else it would have sent headlines around the world, but the FTC was proposing that it would actually prevent Meta from releasing any new features until it came into compliance with X, Y, or Z, which I thought was also a very scary potential punishment. Um, but the, the the chat we were kind of debating back and forth was whether fines are an effective deterrent, especially when you're talking about these tech giants who have, you know, money for days. Um, what's your take on um, do you think that fining is, uh, even though we're just really now starting to see the full effect of GDPR fines, do you think fining is the way of the future or can you see maybe even EU authorities pivoting to some of these FTC maneuvers, um, to try and deter bad behavior? And are those types of maneuvers even permissible as an enforcement under GDPR? Well, fines are not going to go away. You know, I think that's part of, I guess, human history to uh, punish people, and a, and a fine is a pun is a, pun, a form of punishment. Uh, you've done something wrong. Here's the penalty. So I think that's not going to go away. And if anything, if you look at, for example, the um, emerging AI app in Europe, the fines are getting even bigger. So I think uh, fines are uh, serve a purpose, partly to punish partly as a deterrent. But looking at the purpose of uh, those consequences from the point of view of motivating compliance, which is what I was uh, getting at when I was engaging with you and with John Edwards himself. Yeah. Um, I what I've seen over the years, you know, I've been I've been around now for a while, seeing companies, and I and I I've seen many different corporate cultures. Some are more risk averse, some are, are are the opposite end. But ultimately, ultimately, if you if you agree that m most organizations out there, at least the ones that I've worked with, do have a degree of or a sense of responsibility. When they, um, whether that's responsibilities to their customers, their shareholders, or their employees, it's a different matter, but they, they, they all have a, a sense of responsibility. When they look at uh, the motivation for compliance, I would think that the prospect of being fined if you don't do things right is probably not the number one motivator. I, well, I, I know it's not. 
because when you are running a business, what you want to know is that you are going to be able to run the business in the direction you want to run it and that you're going to be able to do and launch the products and, and operate the services in the way that you think uh, will make will make you successful. So if anything gets in the way of doing that, that is more of an issue. And for any commercial organization, commercial organizations sell stuff, whatever, products, services, to other businesses, to consumers, they need to sell stuff. And I think everybody understands that if you, if people think you are, you're a crook, people will not buy stuff from you. And I know it's an oversimplification, but the point being that most companies want to be perceived as being responsible, that customers can trust them. And this is more so the case in a, in a business to business situation where there is competition, particularly if there is competition, obviously. And therefore, I think that in terms of uh, uh, the regulatory policy, the idea of uh, measures that could say could basically get in the way of operating a business in the way which the business leaders want to do it, that is a much bigger deterrent than than a fine. So that that's based on on my experience and my uh, I I don't know knowledge of uh, human psychology from what I've seen. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but but just um, to put a bow on that a little bit, could are um, under the GDPR, could regulators get creative with some of those types of solutions in terms of like you have to destroy the algorithm or you know you're forbidden from uh, practicing doing X Y Z practice in the future? Absolutely, I think um, ultimately, if a data processing practice is unlawful, the regulator's role is to say, this is unlawful, you cannot do it, and you must stop doing it. And if you do it, then uh, we will, we'll, we'll ask you to stop. And if you, if you, if you can't, uh, we will make sure that uh, you suffer the consequences. So I think, um, yes, that, that is in reality the, probably the, the greatest tool that a regulator has to, to ensure compliance. Yeah, I just, I guess I haven't seen decisions and I'm been by in, you know, I am certainly not in an encyclopedia of enforcement actions, but like I haven't seen stuff like you have to delete the entire algorithm, for example, or this sort of like proposed order where, go ahead, yeah. Well, I mean, deleting an algorithm may have nothing to do with personal data, and therefore that may not be a consequence that a regulator can uh, order. But as we have seen, for example, in very recent times, um, uh, in Italy, the Garante issued uh, an order uh, which stopped OpenAI from operating their uh, ChatGPT technology in Italy. That's right. And they had very, very quickly to say, actually, uh, we should be able to operate this because here's how we do it lawfully. And then the Garante looked at that and said, oh, okay, well, if, if, if that is the case, then uh, thank you very much for letting me know. Then that's fine. We lift our suspension. Mm. But temporarily, the fact that 
it was perceived by the regulator that it was not compliant led to a suspension of operations. So I think that that is quite a severe measure. Yeah, fair, fair. I do remember seeing that case. Yeah. Okay. So just to push things forward, Facebook now has, I think, five months um, to, let's see, or Meta. I'm sorry. I keep calling it Facebook. Uh, It has five months to stop transferring data and six months to stop processing any EU citizens' data previously sent there um, since the invalidation of Privacy Shield. Uh, But as we said, just to leave folks with a, uh, here's what to expect. We expect, uh, Meta has said it will appeal the decision. In the meantime, we're waiting for this. Uh, we're waiting for the EU and the US polit- politically to get together and figure out a way to come in with wearing capes and save the day, right? Yeah. So I, I guess you could say that the most severe elements of the decision, and by the way, I'm not trivializing a uh, billion euro fine. But if we put that aside for a moment, the most damaging elements of the the decision, which is basically stopping uh, Facebook's business in Europe, is, is, is a virtual consequence in the sense that it's very, very, very unlikely to happen because as you're saying, apart from appealing the decision, what is on, you know, I think with almost complete certainty, we can expect that the, the law will completely, will be the, the amendments to US law will be finalized. The European Union, the, the European Commission will issue its adequacy decision and therefore the the cause of the problem becomes cured, not because Facebook has done anything or Meta has done anything differently, but because the governments have managed to change the, the, that law that was the, the issue. And therefore, that suspension and that uh, order to, to, to stop the processing will never actually happen in practice because there is no reason for that to happen. Right. But and I, I, which makes it sort of an interesting situation, I think, uh, because when I first heard the decision as a, you know, privacy journalist, my reaction was, I got to put out a piece on here's what to do, uh, in light of this decision. And in reality, it's a little bit of a hurry up and wait situation, right? Because there isn't much you can do at the moment. Uh, we just have to sort of wait for politics to play out. Yeah, and you see, this is ultimately, in my view, this is the weirdest thing about this decision. That we have, you know, if you think about it, we have, by a considerable margin, the most severe enforcement decision ever made by a European Data Protection Authority, ever, right? And when you look at the reason, you could say, well, Obviously, Meta didn't comply with the GDPR, but 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 when you look at it, really, what they were doing is simply transferring data. There wasn't any compliance measure that was missing. Right. <laughs> or, or, or compliance measure that is, in reality, deployable here that was missing. That's the whole thing. That if you are a, a data controller, 
uh, you say, well, I'm going to ignore the law and I'm not going to get caught or hopefully I won't get caught, but I'm just not going to comply with the law. I'm just going to get on with things. And you don't put compliance measures in place. You don't put the right contract. You don't, you don't, you ignore the individual's uh, rights. You don't have a legal basis for, uh, for the processing, all this stuff. Then I can see that a regulator will say, well, You've, you breach all these different provisions in the law because you could have taken steps to comply with the law and you have blatantly chose to ignore it. I, I just don't think this is the case here <laughs> because when you read the decision, every single measure that every single company undertakes or, or well-advised company undertakes you know, contractual protections, organizational protections, like non-disclosure non policies or, or internal policies that are very rigorous in the way in which you uh, assess the legality of any uh, request for access to data and how you challenge that and how you narrow it down and how you ensure that only the minimum amount of information is provided and any uh, technological measure to protect the security so that you are not hacked by the, by the government and, and, and all that. So all these different things, Meta was doing all that. You know, was, you know it was in a sense uh, flawless. Their, their compliance approach was in a sense flawless, but they still get hammered by this massive enforcement action. And, and, I, and we all know why. But ultimately, that is, is a bizarre situation that we don't have a blatant breach of compliance requirements. It's simply that you happen to be transferring personal data to the United States because that's where you process the personal data. And then the United States having to have a law that allows uh, intelligence agencies to have access to that data in a way that is, doesn't, is not fully compatible, if we put it like that, with European law. So it's, 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 that is quite a, quite a twist, I think. Yeah. And I think, uh, when I, when I was thinking about it earlier too, it's like without a Snowden and without a Schrems, like we're probably not here at all, right? Like we're just transferring data back and forth happily. Yeah. And, and, but look, and, and I'm not saying that, oh, I wish this hadn't happened. Look, things happen and ultimately, whistleblowers have a role to play in society and they sacrifice themselves uh, for doing that. And I'm, I'm not judging uh, what they do. That's, the, that's their job, that's their passion, and that's their, their mission in life. I understand that. And maybe they did us a favor, you know, ultimately, because we all want to be free. But, uh, but that, that's not what data protection law is about. You know, data protection law, I don't think it's about resolving, uh, the sort of this democratic dilemma about the limits of surveillance. Data protection law, at least from the point of view that I've been advising on my entire life, is how to ensure that when you use data of people, that data is protected in such a way that the level of privacy intrusion, if, if there is any, is, is minimized. And what measures you can actively take to ensure that people have a degree of, of control over how you use your, the data. And, and it's obviously very, very complex. But in, in, in plain terms, it is about that, about what 
organizations can do to protect data. And in a global environment, it's about what you can deploy at a global scale. And this will be the case for the foreseeable future. Well, there's uh, lots to look forward to. I want to thank you so much for your insights. I love you. You're so experienced and, uh, you know, live and breathe this stuff every day, of course. Uh, and you've been doing it for a long enough time that you're you're so great at storytelling about it and having being able to put it into context and really frame it. Uh, so I really appreciate you and the time you gave me today. And I hope that you can move on with your Friday evening now and enjoy the weekend. Uh, but thank you so much for making time, Eduardo. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to chat with you as always. 